Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. Yesterday we celebrated Christmas. Some of you are still celebrating with multiple family celebrations, kind of how Christmas works. But as we celebrate, we are reminded that we are celebrating the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Through Christ's birth, the eternal kingdom came into being. And the reality that Christ came and establishes kingdom and salvation for us through it, and through it we are made citizens of heaven, is the foundation of why we celebrate Christmas. One of my favorite parts about Christmas is the Christmas songs, and particularly the ones about Christ, like the one that was just sang, that remind us to worship the King in the middle of this time. Of course, there's this song, We Three Kings, that you know, I'm sure, about the kings that came and followed a star in order to see this Christ child. We find this in Matthew chapter 2. And I want to look at this text this morning, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The events described in this passage probably occurred several months, perhaps even years after Jesus was born. And we see in chapter 2, verse 11, that they are now in a house. They're no longer in this stable, this barn where Jesus was born. And as we examine this narrative, I want to do so by looking at the really the three scenes of this narrative, like a play will work through it. And through these three scenes, we'll see both that Jesus is the promised king, but we'll be challenged to worship Christ. The lady is just saying the song. I was struck by the message. Fall on your knees. Worship Christ. That's what we are called to do during this season. We begin in the first scene with a royal inquiry. 
I know we don't have anything on the screen behind me, so I'll do my best to make sure you get all your blanks. If you don't get them afterwards and it really bothers you, you can see me and I'll give them to you. We begin with a royal inquiry. Verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. And so we see this royal inquiry brought by wise men from the east. Who are these wise men? Well, this wise men refers to a person or Babylonian priest or or wise person who is especially acquainted with the interpretation of stars and dreams. We're actually... First introduced to wise men in a text you may not relate to this. We're introduced to them when the king in Daniel has a dream. And he's not sure what this dream means. And so he brings to himself these men, these wise priests to interpret the dream for him. And they, of course, could not do so. And so Daniel was brought to him, and Daniel interpreted the dream for the king. But these men that the king first brought were of the same order, these magi, these wise men. It belonged to a high caste among the Persians and Medes uh, that counseled the king. They uh, learned and were learned in astrology and medicine and science. And during the time of the Chaldean dynasty, they existed there at the court of Babylon, as we mentioned. And, and Daniel, as a result of all this, was actually made the leader of this group. And so the name then became transferred to those philosophers who studied astrology and science. And so this would have been a group. The song says three. We don't know. We'll find later that they say three because of the three gifts, but it may have been many more came from the former Babylonian Empire. It's known as Parthia at this time. It is the one area of the world that Rome didn't conquer. And they came to the east. They came uh, west to see this, this new king, supposedly, that had come. They would have been very important. It had been very well to do. This would have been quite the display as they loaded up their gifts on their camels and donkeys and traveled by caravan back into the area of Judea. Now, we don't know, as I said, how many wise men. The passage doesn't tell us. Tradition says three because of the three gifts, but... But that's actually probably highly unlikely. There were probably many more than three. And they would have presented quite a sight as they entered Jerusalem with this entourage. As they come, they inform the people, we are coming because we've been inspired by a star. Now, to our ears today, that sounds odd, to say the least. Someone showed up here in Hillsdale and we said, why are you here? And they said, the stars told me to come. We would say, okay. Uh, the story you want, there's four or five in reading, there's a couple in Camden, and I'm sure that's what you're looking for, right? That's what we would think. But that's not the way that it worked in the first century. They came inspired by this star. This star, as they had studied, maybe tradition even came back as far as Daniel, was that this special star would appear signifying the birth of a really important king. In fact, they say we have seen his star.
star in the east. The star prophesying the Messiah. You know, it's interesting enough, we see this prophecy also in Scripture. Numbers 24, 17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. How would these men have known about this prophecy, about this star? And it's, it's quite possible, if not probable, that their books contain teachings given to them by Daniel himself, among which would have been this prophecy. What's interesting is that these pagan men caught what Israel missed. They were looking. God's people were not. And that the Magi were not following the star, though, is clear from the fact that they had to inquire about where Jesus was born. They said, we saw his star in the east, but there's no evidence that it continued to shine or that it led them to Jerusalem. It wasn't until they were told of the prophesied place of birth that the star reappeared and they actually began to follow them. So as they considered the star in the east, and it's an Israelite prophecy, where would an Israelite king be born? Where would we find him? Well, the capital city, of course. And so they travel to Jerusalem. I think there's an important application we need to make from this first scene. These wise men saw a star appear and they recognized that it meant a king was born. But they did more than recognize it, more than note it. They followed it. They acted on it. They determined to go and, and meet this king. This is so much more than the people of Israel did who completely missed this message. We need to be like the wise men. Right? We need to be sensitive to the promises and the commands of God. Sensitive to the working of God, eager to act on it. Unfortunately, often we're like Israel, so familiar with God's word that it just like water off a duck's back, just flows over and we move on. Well, one might think at the outset that Jerusalem would rejoice their long awaited king. The Messiah is here. But instead, we learn of a royal plot. The second scene contains this royal plot on the king's life. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And in verse number uh, 13, we find that when they had departed, God told Joseph through a dream that he is to flee to Egypt because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
Rather than excitement, this new Messiah, this king, the one that's going to throw off Rome and establish his kingdom, he's here. Rather than excitement, we see instead a troubled king, King Herod. Now, in order to understand why Herod was so troubled, we need to learn a little bit about Herod. Herod the Great. Herod had come to power several years earlier through gaining favor with the emperor. He was called a king, although he really wasn't a king. He was more of a tetrarch, more of a ruler over a specific area under the rule of the emperor in Rome. And he'd gained this position by becoming chummy with the emperor, by getting to know him and befriending him and giving him gifts. And so, as an act of gratefulness, the emperor granted to Herod this rulership, this area in Judea to rule. And so he had driven out the Parthians from this area. The, the emperor told him, if you can drive out these people and conquer force, you can have it. So he drives out the Parthians and he takes control of this area and he kept it unified. But how did he keep it unified? Not in the way that we think of unity. He kept it unified through cruelty and, uh, and power. If people got out of line, he would get them back into line. He was an incredibly cruel and merciless man. He was jealous and suspicious of everyone around him. He was afraid for his position and his power. In fact, we discover about Herod that he would actually kill his own Children, because he thought that they were trying to take his throne from him. He murdered several of his wives because he thought they were trying to take the throne from him. He was an incredibly cruel man. And so fearing this potential threat, he went to the high priest. So supposedly there's this king, this Messiah, this star has appeared. Where is he to be born? Well, he was informed of where he would be born. Now, the high priest had to know why he was asking this. Consider all that he had done. There was a high priest named Aristobulus. He had him drowned because he felt that he was trying to overtake him. And after he had drowned this man, he actually held a funeral for him. Pretended to weep at this funeral. His son... It didn't matter to him that uh, Aristobulus was his brother-in-law, his sister's husband. Herod even had his wife killed. Then her mother, two of his sons. In fact, here's how great Herod was. Five days before his death, about a year after Jesus was born, he had a third son executed. And then, in order to make sure people would mourn for him, because he was so wicked, he knew when he died there'd probably be celebrations, he imprisoned hundreds of men and ordered them at the announcement of his death to execute those men. Because he figured if they didn't mourn for me, at least they would mourn for those people and they'd be crying when I die. He was a really nice guy. So he asked the priests, where is this man to be born? 
You can understand when this group of dignitaries from Parthia, this massive caravan of riches and wise men show up and say, we're here to worship the king. You can imagine him thinking, again? Again? And so he is fearing, perhaps even with these Parthians, that maybe they'll try and drive him out of power and take it back with this new king. So he inquires, where is this to be born? And so we see here a prophesied king. Herod recognized the threat. He saw that this might indeed be the very king Israel had longed for, this Messiah who would establish the throne. And so Herod went to the experts. We're told he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now, this was a group of leaders in Israel that Herod had allowed, this group known as the Sanhedrin. And Herod assembled this group of leaders and he asked them, where's this king supposed to be born? Where is he? And no, they, they quickly responded. They knew the answer. In Bethlehem of Judea, Because it's written, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They responded quickly because they knew Scripture. They knew Micah 5, 2, which they quoted. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old From ancient days. These rulers, these Jewish leaders recognized that God's word spoke clearly of a literal, personal Messiah. A historical figure that would be born in Bethlehem in Judea and would come to rule Israel. And note how quickly they answer Herod. But note as well. They knew scripture, but they never went to Bethlehem to see if it was true. They longed for this Messiah, but they weren't too interested in actually going and seeing if indeed he had come. They wouldn't believe him when they ministered among him. Their heads were better than their hearts. We might have thought that the scribes and Pharisees would have been the first to rush to Bethlehem. When they knew the Bible, on the slightest chance that the Savior would be born, that maybe it's true, let's go see. But that was not the case. Instead, a few unknown strangers from a distant land were the first, except for the shepherds, mentioned by Luke, to rejoice at the birth of the Savior's. You know, the Jewish leaders did not accept Christ when he was born or when he preached and taught or when he suffered and died. They acknowledged that one predicted to come would rule, would be sent by God to rule his people. But when he came, they were actually his supreme enemies. They were the ones who sent him to the cross. J.C. Ryle comments, familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. Too many in the church today are familiar with the things of God. We, we know the stories. We've read the Bible. We sat in Sunday school and had the flannel graph. 
Many went to church nine months before we were born. Too many claim to be Christians, but live with poor character, bad attitudes, and sinful lifestyles as we do our best to conform to the standards of the world. We're concerned more with athletics or engines or politics than we are with the kingdom of God. Like the Pharisees of old were whitewashed tombs. We look good on the outside. We smile and come to church and look good. But live with corrupted hearts. We know about Christ. When the time comes to actually follow his word, well, then we just do whatever we want. We ought instead to be like the wise men and rush to worship the king. Not like these scribes and Pharisees, these hypocrites who ignored him. The scene turns to a deceitful king, thirdly. We discover that Herod acts true to his nature. He was a deceitful and vengeful king. After he hears where Jesus is to be born, he summons the wise men to him secretly. He doesn't want anybody else to know. And he ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. When did this happen? We'll discover he did this so that he might know how old this child is. We discover it might have been sometime because when he learns that the wise men did not come back, he kills all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two. He has this desire to kill him. Herod calls the wise men to them and informs them that they've come to the wrong place. The king's not here. The Messiah, this this king, he's to be born in, in this little town called Bethlehem. And, you know, if, if you discover, in fact, that he's been born, listen, how long ago did you see it? Okay, so it might be this old. Well, listen, if it's true and you get to Bethlehem and you find this baby, be sure to come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. And you can just feel the hypocrisy bleeding off of him. Just let me know so I can worship him. If by worship we mean stab him. But that's the plan that he has. We understand Herod had no desire to worship Christ, but rather to kill him. Well, the wise men learn he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they respond immediately by heading there so that they might finally have this long-awaited royal visit. This is the final scene in our story. It says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here we see this royal guide reappear. This star they had seen in the east, they went to Jerusalem expecting the king and they didn't see him. But when they decided to leave to go to where Jesus was, this star reappears. 
And like the pillar of fire with the Israelites in the, in the wilderness, this star goes before the wise men, leading them to Bethlehem, to the place where the child was. In fact, this star led them all the way to the exact house in which they could find, how, find Christ. Indications are the star had disappeared after the wise men had left the east and they had simply gone to Jerusalem as the logical place for a king to be born. But now, however, as they needed a guide to show them exactly where they were supposed to go, this star reappears and leads them, guides them to where they would find Jesus, the star of Christ. And one can't help but think back to the way God led Israel through the wilderness each step of the way. Well, the wise men come to the house and they find Jesus with Mary and Joseph. The spirit confirms in their heart that this is indeed the one they were looking for. Now, we read this, but we don't capture, don't really see the irony or, or the wonder in this. They're looking for a king. They're looking for a spectacular king. One that the cosmos announces with a star. They expect to find him in a palace. But they don't find him in a palace. Instead, they find him in a plain house in a podunk town in Judea. To put it perhaps ways we could understand today, it'd be as if we saw a star that was announcing a new ruler in our country, was born and was coming. Where would we go? And we might have a list of places we might go, whether it was Washington, D.C. or New York or some other major city. We get there and informed, no, he's not here. You're going to find him in a little house in this little village called Cambria. Not where you would expect to find the king of the universe. So they walk into this small house in this small town to this plain blue collar family. And here's this baby. And the spirit confirms in them this is the king. And so... They worship him and they give him royal gifts. Verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You can picture in your mind's eye. All that is happening into this small town comes this massive, rich caravan of notorious people. And they pull up to this little house. And when the mom comes out with the baby, their response is to fall on their knees and worship him. What must the neighbors have thought as they saw this? The people around as they saw this group show up. 
And not only did they begin to worship him, they give him these gifts. As part of their worship, they presented their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, these gifts were not an addition to worship, but an essential part of their worship. Gifts were given as an overflow of adoration and grateful hearts for this new king. And nor were these gifts simply leftovers they could throw at Jesus for tax breaks. They didn't just kind of go through things and figure what they could give extra or or how can I pay less this year to Rome or to Parthia. No, throughout history, gold has been considered the most precious of metals. A universal symbol of material value and wealth. We see this even in marriage. I proposed to my wife, I skimped and saved and bought a gold ring. I never had the thought that I should go to the little, you know, convenience store and put in my quarter and turn and get out a little plastic ring. I love you so much. Will you marry me? Here's this ring. Because it's of no value. Instead, we give a precious metal to demonstrate the value of that individual. And here they give gifts of gold to this family. To demonstrate the value of this child. Frankincense. It was a costly, beautiful smelling perfume that was used only for the most special occasions. It was used in the grain offerings at the the tabernacle and in the temple. It was used in certain royal functions. Sometimes it was used at weddings, but only in the most affluent of weddings. It was seen as a gift fit for a God. And here they're giving this frankincense to God. Myrrh was also a beautiful perfume, not quite as expensive as frankincense, but nevertheless valuable. It was often given as a gift to the one you loved, a a sign of a beautiful and lovely person. These were the gifts of the Magi to Jesus. Gold. For his royalty and his value. Frankincense for his deity. A gift to the gods. Myrrh for his humanity. As the beloved son. Would that we worshiped God in that same way. So often we give to God the leftovers. We find ways to not have to give to him. We think that if we do this or that, then I don't have to give to him because I've already done this or that. But instead, we're commanded to give out of the abundance of grace with which he's given to us. Overflow of gratefulness and thankfulness for God's blessing on our lives. Are you willing to give to God in worship? Lastly, we see a royal warning God intervened and issued to the wise men this royal warning, verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God warned the wise men, don't go back to Herod. He wants to kill this child. So they obeyed God and took a different route home. And even in this, they demonstrated a sensitivity to God that his own people didn't have. We see in this account the three typical responses to Jesus Christ that men have made throughout history. 
Some, like Herod, are immediately hateful. They want to know nothing of God's way except how to attack and destroy it. Others, like the chief priests and scribes, they know all about God. They can tell you all about the Bible. They've heard and seen the flannel graph stories. They sat through Awana. They even sit faithfully in the pews on Sunday. But what they know of God, they don't accept or obey. At most, God is simply given lip service. Eventually, of course, the second group inevitably joins the first because indifference to God is simply hatred of God that is concealed and rejection that is delayed. Others, however, like the Magi from the East, accept the Lord when he comes to them. And this is the challenge for us as we celebrate Christmas. My hope is that this season means more to you than simply decorated trees and lights and songs and movies and presents and parties and family. My hope is that this season is not a time of frustration at yet another get together or maybe even simply a time that we just survive and get through. My hope is that this is the time that we celebrate the reality that Earth's King, God himself, came to earth in order to suffer and die for our sins. So that when we give him our life and respond in faith, we are made citizens of that eternal kingdom. Our hope is that we respond like the wise men. Sacrificial giving worship. Sensitivity to the spirit of God, a passion for the things of God in every area of our lives. The question is, who are you this morning? You Herod, hating the idea that God might be more important than you? Are you the Jewish leaders? All head knowledge, you look great on the outside, but but it's not real. You have no desire to actually make God a part of your everyday life? Or are you like the wise men, seeking to worship God with all your heart and soul and mind, willing to sacrifice for him and give him the best you have? Let's all be like the wise men. Let's find our joy and satisfaction in serving the king. So let me give you three Walking items, three so what's today. Number one, seek to worship God through the way you celebrate Christmas. As you have celebrated, and for some of you, you still have a bit more to go. Could God be seen in it? Number two, don't stop at head knowledge. Don't stop at simply knowing. Live it out. Apply what you know. Be faithful Hearers. Number three, make Christ the king of your life. Follow him. Seek to worship God through the way you celebrate Christmas. Don't stop at head knowledge. Apply what you know and make Christ the king of your life.
Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word. Lord, during this season, as we are particularly attuned to the reality of your coming, the amazing truth of the incarnation, that you would take on flesh, that you would take our sins on you so that we could have your righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by that, that the gospel would be clear in the way that we worship. That we would not be content with simply knowing about you. But that we would seek in every aspect of our life to know you truly. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.